Hi guys, welcome back to the Earthly Delights podcast. Today we have a special guest who will nourish the soul, Reverend Roger Quick. We speak to Reverend Roger about his own struggles with mental health and addiction and his inspirational work helping the homeless. We talk about his journey from stumbling into St George's Crypt seeking refuge after a drunken row. Nobody could have predicted that 40 years later he'd return as his chaplain. Reverend Roger's story is one of trials and tribulations, but ultimately one of compassion. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. It was such an honour to talk to Reverend Roger. So without further ado, here is Reverend Roger Quick. Reverend Roger Quick, welcome to the Earthy Delights podcast. What's the crack? How are you doing? I'm doing fine, guys. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much. Uh, we've, I've really look, we're really looking forward to this podcast. We've exchanged some lovely emails, and you've actually exchanged some memes with me, which was quite unexpected, but uh, nice to see, and it made me chuckle. Um, but, but before we get going, I, I'd just like want to for people who don't really know your story, could you just give us a bit of a background? How you know we've kind of connected through the elite alumni. Um, system um how did that take place your role in, in in the leads as a graduate and then to where you are now okay uh well i was an undergraduate at leeds in the mid 70s and there was one occasion uh just after my time there when i'd had a violent domestic row and i ended up in leeds on the streets looking for somewhere to stay and I went to St. George's Crypt, which is a homeless charity. I've been working in Leeds since 1930. And I got turned away because I was too drunk. Uh, the crypt has had one rule for many years, which is not to let you in if you're as pissed as a fart. And basically, I got very, very kindly sent away to the Salvation Army, who'll take you in any state, or they did in those days. And I went down there. They were full. I ended up walking across some waste ground and suddenly came to a halt. It was well after midnight by this time. And I realized that if I'd taken one pace more, immediately in front of me was a deep, deep hole in the ground on a building site. And as I looked down, I could see the moonlight reflecting off water a long way down. And if I'd taken one step more, I don't think anyone would have found me. And I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have survived. Well, I wouldn't have done. Uh, That sort of sobered me up slightly. Mm. And I went off to a mate's house, went sofa surfing. And that was my first experience of St. George's Crypt where I've been chaplain now for the last seven years. In the intervening nearly 40 years, all sorts of stuff happened, which I can tell you about in due course. One of the the constant themes through all of that has been mental illness, which had afflicted me before and still comes back. Uh, In an odd way, that enables me to do the work that I do now, better than would be the case i suspect maybe i'm just trying to find an optimistic slant on it but i honestly believe it it does help Mm. yeah that's how i came to be here 
Mm. It's interesting because I think a lot of people are going to see this podcast and see, you know, Reverend Roger Quick and they're going to think, oh, here we go. It's going to be a little sermon or it's going to be this guy trying to convert us all into Christians once more. But you've actually, in your youth, were an ardent atheist. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, no, I'm not about to convert anyone. Do what you like. <laughs> um, it's, yeah. I need to give you some background to that. I mm-hmm. was I was brought up in a very, very religious background. My father was ordained, as was his father, uh, in a fairly narrow Protestant evangelical sect. Uh, by narrow, I mean that, for example, when I was young, we didn't have a television because it was regarded as the devil's instrument. Uh, having the wireless on, uh, was slightly suspect. Programs were carefully chosen, and we weren't allowed to listen to it on a Sunday. Um, we weren't allowed to play cards. Drinking alcohol didn't happen. Uh, smoking cigarettes was definitely a sin, and sex, frankly, did not exist. Mm. Yeah. So I had all that. Uh, when I was eight years old, my dad had a change of heart and became rather more mainstream, which was Methodist. Um that didn't necessarily mean that everything suddenly changed uh, and we went pole dancing at weekends. Um, but a lot did change. But I was my dad's organist and choir master from the time I was 12 years old, which meant I spent more time in church than any child should, frankly. And by the time I left home for university, I'd had it up to here. I really didn't want to see the inside of a church again. I'd seen too much hypocrisy. I'd seen people being mean to my dad, who was a lovely guy. And it seemed to me that if that was your Christianity, well, you can stuff it, frankly. And... I didn't see any reason to believe. There seemed nothing logical or reasonable about it. And so by the time I hit university, yeah, I was atheist. Not in any particularly strident way, you know. If someone wanted to believe, on you go. Mm -hmm. If you want that sort of mental and spiritual crutch, if you feel you need that, fine. I don't. Now I'm going to the pub. Uh, (laughs) And, yeah, that was how I arrived at that place, really. And do you believe you spoke about your mental, um, some of your mental struggles? Did they start to take place or take shape when during that time when you kind of lost your faith, or was that after? No, no. I think the mental health problems went way back into childhood. Um, As a young child, I was asthmatic, which was rare in those days. I only knew one other child with asthma, and I spent vast amounts of time in hospital. So I only got about half the schooling that I would otherwise have done. And I think it was psychosomatic. Um, It was certainly stress-related. They never found any allergy or any other particular reason why it should have happened. And at puberty, interestingly, it changed in that I seemed to grow out of the asthma but was very quickly diagnosed with some mental health issues. Now, we're talking about the mid-60s here. That's the 1960s, yeah. Mm-hmm. And 
the diagnostic tools, particularly for um, pediatric psychiatry, were pretty basic. Um, I went along to the doctor because my family recognized that I was having some problems. Um, and he, div he, he he diagnosed something called nervous exhaustion. Uh, God knows what that was meant to be. And gave me some Valium and a couple of other things. Uh, it didn't really help. It didn't really help that my home life wasn't terribly happy. It was a bit isolated. My school life was certainly isolated because I was supposed to be a good Christian at all times and witness to the Lord before the sinners who made up the rest of my class. Now, the rest of my class were fantastic, actually, when I think back. We met up just four or five years ago for the first time in 40-odd years. Wow. And... The, the reunion, I said, so what are we going to do? Right, I'll tell you what we're going to do, Rog. We'll meet up outside the Audi in Leicester Square and just take it from there. All right. So so we did. And I got talking to one of my friends who was a, a skinhead, I mean, proper skinhead. He was a Chelsea boot boy and mm. went out what he would have called packy bashing. And, yeah, it was really there was some unpleasant and violent stuff going on. Now, he he bullied me on a daily basis, very rarely physically, but socially, mentally, more or less all the time, between every lesson. And that didn't help my mental health much no. at all. Yeah. Uh, I'm very glad that I know him now. We have healed some of those memories and I am grateful to him and looking back on it all I think well actually it taught me how to mix with a whole variety of people and to some extent how to deal with crisis so that was the immediate background to the mental health issues I think there were things that were going on in my home life and within the wider environment, certainly there was stuff going on because we'd been taught as children in my family that the family was safe and church was safe. But out with that, it was all darkness, wailing and gnashing of teeth. You, you from what I've read, um, you come across or people write about you anyway. I'm sure you're too modest to say so yourself, but as somewhat of a musical prodigy, um, do without i'm not saying that you have to say that about yourself i'll say it for you no but, i'll say it yeah i'll go along with that. <laughs> okay perfect um but did did, did that ever, was that some sometimes your salvation was that where you sought solace with the um, music absolutely i retreated into it um before i can remember doing it i'm told by members of my family that if anything upset me i went to the piano and played it out and it really was it, it helped me hugely. It was something I could lose myself in. It's something that I felt I was good at. Uh, and I suppose comparatively I was. I got a, a place as a junior at the Royal College of Music when I was 13. That was on Saturdays. I went there. And that saved my life, frankly, because I was with other young people who were musical and it was a, a huge, huge thing. And I suddenly felt at home. It was it was brilliant. It was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Music was my salvation. 
and when you you know you had this really kind of strict um upbringing then you get to leeds union anyone who knows leeds union i suspect it's probably the same back then as it is to these days it's quite the place there's a there's more than one pub <laughs> to lose yourself in um and you spoke about how you'd had this drunken row which had then led you to the george's crypt for the very first time do you think that maybe the university and the stark contrast it had with your childhood was almost kind of too much to bear all at what this sudden change did that some did that lead to what eventually happened i think that will be a classic analysis and a reasonable one uh i was suddenly free i during the sixth form when i changed schools actually so that my life became wider and easier and broader and i discovered that i could actually be happy at school which amazed me frankly um I had a gap year, which was a bit unusual, where I did some musical work and other stuff. And then, yeah, coming up to Leeds University was like coming up for air. It was fantastic. Um, Now, this was 1974. Now, for a lot of us, the 60s really happened in the 70s. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. Um, in my case, it was sex, drugs, and Beethoven rather than rock and roll. <laughs> um, but I spent a lot of time in the Faversham, the on-campus pub, uh, now and again in the Union Bar. And and apart from that, huge amounts of time with, would you believe, the Light Opera Society, <laughs> which doesn't singing Gilbert and Sullivan sound necessarily promising as a den of vice and iniquity, but it had its moments, believe me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I started with a lot of energy towards the end of my first year. uh, I began to fall apart mentally. There was a specific trigger to this in the end, and that was to do with a theatrical production, oddly enough. Uh, a famous play, Peter Weiss's Marassad, the full title of which tells you a good deal about it. The persecution and assassination of Mara, as performed by the inmates of the asylum at Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. Yeah, a nice bright little number then. <laughs> uh, well, I wrote the score for it and we did it and it actually won the national student drama festival that year it was a fantastic heart-stopping production uh but i was on stage playing musical instruments but playing the part of a lunatic for three hours a night as we did that and by the end of the run i couldn't put the lunatic bits back i'd somehow had access to parts of myself uh it was was real method acting i guess um and that and some emotional relationship problems <laughs> inevitably uh probably too much weed as well maybe too much booze and one night i just sort of cracked up basically and was sitting sobbing in a chair and a doctor came out from student health department and took me in for the night, uh, tranquilized me fairly heavily. And when I woke up about noon the next day, he was there sitting on the edge of my bed and he looked at me and he said, 
you look like you need a cigarette. <laughs> that was proper <laughs> doctoring, you know. Uh, he said, uh, we'll open the window so Matron doesn't find out. Then gave me one of his Rothmans. That was the beginning of a formal medical journey, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you say that, Roger, because I recently I rewatched a, a documentary with Jim Carrey who talks about the difficulties of his mental health when he was playing the character uh, Andy Kaufman. And I think the quote he says after was he was six months method acting intensely. And he came home and then he, he said he forgot who he was. He forgot what his political moral compass was. And it's, it's interesting to hear you have a, a somewhat a similar experience in that. And yeah. Yeah. Can you talk us through the process of you being able to maybe find then who, who like regain this sense of self, I guess? Yeah. If I ever do, I'll give you a call. Okay. <laughs> it's it. Uh, Dear, dear God, it's an ongoing process. Uh, but, there, yeah, there were significant moments and things that happened. Uh, and if you like, I can talk you through them. And some of that involves refinding faith of some sort as well, okay? During my time as a student, um, I should say having finished my first year, cracked up, tried to start the second year and couldn't do it. I just wasn't fit uh, mentally in any way to be able to to undertake a, a rigorous path of study and, and lead a, something like a normal life. I was still searching for something which would make sense of it all, a sort of theory of everything, I guess. When you've been brought up within a very tightly structured system as I had. Once that's gone, it's like being cast adrift in an open boat. And I needed to find somewhere and somehow. I read endlessly. I remember reading particularly Ursula Le Guin, the, the Earthsea trilogy. And the first of those, where the protagonist turns and faces his fear, and then it flees from him. That spoke to my condition. I was reading the, the Dao De Jing, the central Taoist work. Um, I was reading Solzhenitsyn, listening to Shostakovich, which is, you know, Shostakovich, wonderful wrist-slashing music. It's fantastic. It's just... You, people think that having happy music helps when you're in the midst of depression. I do not find that. Uh, and I knew a string quartet who used to go and play in mental hospital. And they normally played a, you know, a cheery bit of Mozart or Haydn or something. And one day they were short of rehearsal time and decided to play a bit of the Shostakovich they were rehearsing. And it had the most remarkable impact because it is grieving, yearning music coming out of Shostakovich's own mental health struggles throughout his life. And that spoke to the people who listened to it. Well, I found the same. It helped me. But in the middle of all this, I would go and talk to one friend in particular who seemed to understand. 
there were a whole group of us as students together, and we went and talked to this guy who was called John McKendrick. John was a brilliant poet and playwright, and he finished up as playwright of the National Theatre, playwright in residence. He he understood. He understood somehow at a deep level and knew what to do and put me back together any number of times. And if things got really bad, I would call John. And then one morning, I got a phone call to say that he died and that he'd taken his own life. Now, I could draw a big line across my life before and after John's death because I wanted to he was my role model and guru. I wanted to follow in his footsteps. And I suddenly realized then that if I followed in his footsteps, I was going to go over the same cliff. Well, I did what I always did at times of stress. I went to the pub. And it was the Faversham early doors. And there was only one other person there who, damn it, was the university chaplain. Now, this guy wearing a dog collar, I did not trust at all. But I knew him slightly because I'd done the odd concert there, you know. And he was a man in his 50s, quite academic, quite dry, but also quite funny, as you're about to discover. And I went and sat with him and said, how are you? And he said, well, he said, I can't get on with the church's calendar. They keep mucking around with it. It should be the third Sunday after Epiphany. Well, we've had Help the Aged Sunday, See Sunday, Single Parent Sunday. I'm going to have a Fuck Sunday. Well, <laughs> do you know, I nearly <laughs> fell off my chair. I'd never heard my dear saintly father, bless him, say so much as damn. And Alan Overell took a deep drag on his cigarette and looked at me and smiled. He knew he got me. And he just looked at me and he said, how are you? Well, I trusted him and I told him. And it took a long time, a long, long time of telling. And at the end of my story, he just leant back and he tapped his collar and said, you need to be one of us. Now, I had walked into that pub pretty much an atheist. I wanted nothing to do with the church. And I walked out with the sense that I should be a priest. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah. It, it was as though the, the, the belief and vocation sort of came at the same time. So how um, old were you at that now, time? you could analyze. How old was I? I was in my, I was about 23. Yeah. Yeah. And you could say, okay, that would fit very neatly with the story you've told us about your childhood and your abandonment of that overarching structures that you had been brought up in and you abandon it. And then at time of great stress, you need to go back and take sucker from that and take refuge in it. That may be true. I don't think it invalidates the truth that I found within it. Our motives are never unmixed. Mm. Can you unpack that a little, Roger, that our motives are never unmixed? Because I think there's there's something great there. 
Yeah, okay. I'll tell you in the context of where I am now, here in St. George's Crypt, we do our best to look after people who are homeless and vulnerable in Leeds. We have, at the moment, 15 residents staying in single rooms, socially isolating. Our dormitory would normally have accommodated 20 or 30 more. They are staying somewhere else with our staff looking after them. And we do lunch for about 100 people. But that's as well as another uh, 25 who are living in four of our recovery houses. That's just the sort of surface of it, because we're not just providing a hot meal and a bed for the night, or indeed a shower, socks and underpants and whatever else they might materially need. We are trying to value each person who comes in and to tell them that their lives are valuable at a time when the rest of society may well be saying to them, you're a lump of shit. They have nothing. They have nothing to offer and nothing to give. But that is never the case. I, I meet some of the most extraordinary, wonderful, beautiful, and uh, just fantastic in every way and interesting people in the city who, who come here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they could they can be also rogues and villains uh, who can be vicious, violent, and cruel to an extraordinary degree. But I know that that capacity is in me also. It's in all of us. Now, we are there doing all this good stuff, looking after these homeless people. Whoopee-woo, that's fantastic. Well, you're doing a great job. Well done. And it's you could look at all that and say, yeah. But that gives you such a nice warm fuzzy when you've done it. You're really getting off on your good works. You like it when you go out of here and you say to people, I work at St. George's Crypt, and they say, oh, that's a fantastic work you're doing. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. And all that is really good. And all that exists, it is true. But it does not invalidate the good that we are able to do. Our motives are never unmixed. Hmm. It's really interesting you say that because um, Jim and I have recently spoke to Richard Moore, who uh, he, he is a fascinating story and an unbelievable man. Uh, he had been he's been blinded by um, uh, a soldier during the troubles in Northern Ireland as a, as a young child, and he sought about uh, forgiveness basically and sought out the soldier and forgave him. And through his story, he met with the Dalai Lama, and it's funny because obviously different faiths but the dalai lama says there's such a thing as good selfish and you can do something uh, that is good yeah, for selfish yeah. reasons and like you said doing and jim and i can attest we do this podcast and listen we try our best to do it for other people we try to get people on from all walks of life to create a sort of audio encyclopedia about mental health but there is a selfish nature to it that jim and i love to have these conversations and ultimately without the podcast we wouldn't be able to speak to people like you and so that's a good selfish as the dalai lama would call it um, oh, I, I, <laughs> I, I love it you see this is it at the heart of all religions uh, and i might well include atheism in that mm. we're all just climbing different sides of the same mountain now, my side might look very, very different from yours, but we are somehow trying to go the same way. Mm. 
And I see that absolutely with the Dalai Lama. Um, this is a fantastic photograph of the Dalai Lama uh, with uh, Desmond Tutu. And they are helpless with laughter together. And you look at this and you think, yeah, okay, I get it. You get each other. And yeah, no, that's that's absolutely how it should be. Mm. I I wanted to ask you, because we do want to get onto um, the amazing work that you've done um, with the Crips and what you're still doing, obviously. Before we get into that, I just want to touch, um, you know, Jim said maybe at the start of the start of this podcast that maybe some of our listeners or the majority would maybe define themselves as atheists. But that said, I think a lot of us, and I would include myself in that bracket, but that I, I think a lot of us, when I speak to people, the problem they have with religion is maybe twofold either sometimes the dogmatic um sense of it depending on which church or, or what father you've had or so on um and also i think the divinity of it all the fact that we're supposed to believe potentially that jesus may have fed five thousand people with a, a couple of fish and some bread and this that and the other and that kind of leads us astray i think but i wondered do you think we can like accept jesus as a moral teacher without accepting his divinity <laughs> Uh, uh, you know on one level that is the only way to accept him because he is human absolutely and yeah it was significant for me also that on the course to coming to a point of belief i was reading uh chesterton which just i he isolates all the sayings of jesus a lot of them don't make any sense out of context, but I, I had a look at that. But that question is its just a really interesting one and fairly central. C.S. Lewis, Jesus in the wardrobe and all that, yeah. He says at one point, you cannot specifically, uh, I, I actually have the quote here, which I can read you because it's it's a significant one, I think. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord or God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So says Jack Lewis. Um, He's wrong, of course. Um, But for a very specific reason, um, there's a really dangerous thing to say about Lewis. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> on we go. Um, because the claims for Jesus' divinity are in the New Testament, specifically in uh, one gospel more than another. And we know that those writings took their shape in the early days of the church as they were trying to work out who this guy was and what had happened. Now, some of us may well believe that some of those things, some of those stories emerged because if you really were God incarnate, 
then these things must have been part of your life. There must have been miraculous events surrounding your birth, like being born of a virgin, for example, or being able to do miracles, or, dare it be said, rising from the dead. So I don't think it's possible just to say he's either the Son of God or he's a poached egg. But I think rather we can look at it, try to look at it in the context of the writing of the time. For what it's worth, I actually have no problem believing all that stuff. Um, to some extent, some of it, I don't think it matters either way. Did he walk on water? Well, maybe. Yeah, that's fine. There are a lot of things that happen that can't be explained. Maybe you just didn't tell us where the stepping stones were. Um, or did he feed thousands of people from us? Yeah, it's, it's possible. Are people healed? Yeah, people, people are healed in all sorts of ways now. And we might explain it by reference to faith healing or, or, or other things. There are also a lot of charlatans around pretending to do it. Um, I believe, yes, that God chose to come into his creation and be part of it. And that's one of the central meanings of Jesus for me. Uh, but I'm not about to condemn anyone to hell who doesn't believe that, partly because I don't believe in hell, so that would make it a bit difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting because I'm reading a book now called uh, The Godless Gospel by Julian Bergini. And, ah, um Great man. Yeah, uh, hopefully we can get one on this podcast. I've read a few books of his now. Um, but he um, and some of my questions are almost, it's almost plagiarism um, <laughs> that I'm just lifting from his pages. But it's really interesting because the way that he breaks it down and it kind of, in a way, is making me see the beauty of faith again. After, Like you said, when you'd seen some things with Christianity, you thought, well, if that's Christianity, then stuff it. Some things, similar things had happened with my life where, you know, I'd had my my family, Italian family, who were devout or are, I should say, devout Catholics. When the moment came for them to act as devout Catholics, I would say they uh, they didn't really come to the calling. And so I thought, well, if that's Catholicism, you can stuff that. Um, and yet reading this book now, uh, The Godless Gospel, is actually kind of making me fall back in love and seeing the beauty of faith. So, so that's where that comes from. And one of the points that Julian Bugini makes, um, and I think it's really important and links nicely to the homelessness problem or pandemic, I guess, that we're suffering now. So it's kind of a two-part question. But the first part is um, he argues that Jesus was one of the um, foremost promoters of individualism. Um, and I sent you an email, but you know, one of the um, quotes he's taken from the Bible from Jesus himself is that for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Um, and I was just, I was wondering, could we, whilst it's not his intention, um, could we say that Jesus emphasis on the individual has helped create conditions uh, in which the wrong kind of e egoism could potentially flourish, which could then lead to uh, homelessness and so on. Yeah, um, it is a good question to consider. I want to put it in the context of what for me is the bottom line about religious faith of any sort. Mm -hmm. That is, if your religion makes you more compassionate, 
it's a good thing. If it doesn't, you need to think again. That, for me, is the absolute bottom line. Uh, and it relates to what I see to be the nature of God, who I wouldn't want to define by any means. But it's about compassion and love. That is my own experience. Now, that itself relates to your question. Because you find in different churches that there is a different emphasis on the individual and the collective. Specifically, um, Protestantism is very individual. Uh, you need within the evangelical tradition to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Okay, that's the tagline. Yeah. Within Catholicism, it's part of the corporate. Now you can see an illustration of this in what happens in terms of how scripture is read. In the Catholic Church, the priest or deacon reads from the Bible, yeah? yeah? And everyone turns and listens at the gospel. Within the evangelical tradition, you will find in the back of the seat in front of you, for your use, a Bible. And when the Bible reading is announced, everyone turns to the umpteenth chapter of the prophet Zebulun, the 14th chapter beginning at the second verse, and they all read individually. That is a real sign of the difference between what's happening corporately and what's happening individually. Now, we can relate that to your question, which is about the the relationship between the individual and the example of Jesus. Anything can be turned to bad and corrupted. The better a thing is, the worse it is when it becomes corrupted. We certainly see that in the church. We see it in terms of society. We see it in terms of something like nationalism. We see it in terms of an appeal to the group, which can be the most fantastic force for good or for bad. And on this day, as the American election results are breaking, we see that exemplified absolutely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. The group can be good or bad. It doesn't have uh, an absolute worth in itself. And the same may actually be said of the individual. But the individual always functions within a societal context. So right from conception, you are part of a society, and what happens to you functions within that society. My own history that I was talking about bears witness to that. And one of the things we try and do here at the Crypt is to provide something like a welcoming society which will validate someone's worth. Okay? Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I have to thank Julian for the question because it's something that I read on his in his book and it's something that never occurred to me. But then when I read it, I was like, that's a fascinating um, hypothesis and I just wanted to put, put that to you because I think however you see it, I think individualism, whether you believe Jesus brought it about or maybe more sinister things like capitalism, um, I wonder, do you think there can be a, a link that's drawn between individualism and, homeless, and the homeless pandemic? Because, and I'll put myself in this bracket, I've been in Leeds for four years. I've seen the homeless and it's, I mean, it's not something that's unique to Leeds. It's something that's almost worldwide. But when I saw them and before I started this journey, I would see them as an individual failure rather than a potential failure of the system. 
And I wonder if um, I was so in, in the matrix that I couldn't actually step back a little and maybe see that there was nuance there and understand different reasons why they might be in the situ- current situation they are in and how near enough any of us can get to that situation with a couple of missteps. Um, and I was wondering, do you think that individualism that we kind of celebrate in the West leads to our lack of compassion when we see the homeless on the streets? There's something fascinating in this. Um, there, there have been two really excellent books come out around homelessness this year. Uh, one of them I wrote. Um, <laughs> and the other one is by uh, an investigative journalist, Maeve McLennan, called No Fixed Abode. And one of the things that she says in that is she cites a piece of research which happened a few years ago uh, done by a guy called Lasano Harris. And he found by putting people in an MRI scanner and looking at their brain, seeing which bits lit up, and then showed them images of all sorts of things, but including someone who was homeless. And he found that the bits of the brain which reacted to seeing the image of a homeless person were not those which react on seeing another human being. They were those which react on seeing Mm -hmm. an object. Mm -hmm. Now, that says a huge, huge amount. He said also, which was just delightful, there was a way to short-circuit that and get the person to be seen as a person again. And you ask the person who's being scanned, do you think they'd prefer carrot or broccoli? And that puts them back in the human frame. Now, something very particular happens with that. In terms of what happens politically, oh, dear God. Uh, My dad had two friends, one of whom said... uh, If you're a Christian, then you really ought to be a conservative. And the other said, I don't see how you can be a Christian unless you're a socialist. One was Margaret Thatcher and the other was Lord Soper. Uh, My dad knew them both. Uh, In fact, she used to come to my dad's church in Finchley every now and again and listen to his sermons. I blame him (laughs) for a lot, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, again, you, there, within different political systems, there is a capacity for compassion. Uh, even when it's hard to see, it must be somewhere there in Donald Trump. God knows. Absolutely, Roger. And I think this has come a nice full circle because. Now that you bought a, a beautiful quote, I have to bring a beautiful quote also. But the, the link is earlier you talked about the idea of looking at someone and seeing that this potent, this obvious flaw that that I see in this person, this this could be potentially me. And I think very few people see that. I think very few people think that really could be me. Um, and then you talked about compassion. And there's this wonderful quote that I found this year. And it says, it goes, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. 
but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. I, I think this quote... Oh, I love that. Hey, can, can you send me that? I'll, who is I'll, it? I'll absolutely send it to you. It's from a Russian author called Alexander Solskin Setsin. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm not... Sol, Solzhenitsyn? Yes, yes. Ah, Solzhenitsyn. But Solzhenitsyn is fantastic. I mean, he is—he's—he has that same Russian dark soul as Shostakovich. He's a sort of literary equivalent. And in the seventies, he was one of the people who he wrote the Gulag Archipelago, particularly, which was a oh, it was it was sort of central to who we were uh, coming to being and growing up as students in those days that psychologically the primal scream art yanov we all got off and thought oh if we could only go to his clinic in california um we'd all be healed well i can tell you things ended pretty badly there but that's another thing yeah thank you for that quote that's just lovely because it just came to mind when when you were talking about this 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 need for compassion this this ability to see uh, the flaw of somebody else potentially in us and that when we deny that, that that flaw could potentially be a part of us, we are kind of cutting ourselves off from our, from ourselves. And, and, and we want to do it because we want to be good little boys and girls. You know, we want mommy and daddy to love us and the rest of the world can do it if they, if they can't. Uh, that's why you have to say, I'm the greatest president that's ever been seen. I am the best at every last thing, you know. It's it's all about that. But actually, to acknowledge the flaws that are there, uh, the traditional words of confession, you know, have a lot of value. Uh, bless me, Father, I have sinned. It, 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 it sets the ground where you are. And then remember what the priest says at the end, go and pray for me, also a sinner. We're all in this together. Yeah, yeah. There's a wonderful thing I'm reading at the moment. <laughs> yes, um, this is the founder of um, the House for Sinners and Saints by uh, an American Lutheran minister called Nadia Boltzweber. It has a picture of her arms on the front of the book. Can you see <laughs> that there? Uh, for those, for our listeners, I should say, it's an arm that's covered in tattoos. And one chapter in the book is called, for example, he's a fuck-up, but he's our fuck-up. And, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, you, you see how important the word fuck has been for my salvation. Yeah. <laughs> and for all of ours, I think. And for yeah, all I of ours. think so. I think so. One way and another. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I was wondering, um, like, we, you talk about that object, how we see them as an object, we see homeless people as an object. And. I think, I think, like Jim said, there's a part that we we try to shut it off from ourselves, and maybe we don't see them as us, or or what. Maybe I think there's another part where maybe it scares us that we could potentially be that way. If you ever speak to someone who's selling a big issue or or whatever, they often had 
you know good careers or whatever the case may be and like i said sometimes through their own misfortune or sometimes through something they had no control over here they are selling a big issue on a cold winter's night and that can scare us i think because we're so built into this notion of working working saving saving buying a house getting a mortgage blah 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 and to see that these people were in the same rat race and here they are can be a really scary thought How, how do you um for anyone who's thinking of practical advice, because you always hear the thing of, oh, don't give a homeless person money because they'll only spend it on, on drinks and drugs, which I can't remember who said this, but some, I think it might have been a comedian said, well, that's what I was going to spend it on anyway. So I might as well <laughs> give it to the homeless person, which I think is perfect. Is there any practical advice? Like if you saw someone, for example, now in the winter, or not even the winter, throughout the year, if you saw someone homeless, um, what would you advise an individual to do would it be to get them a meal deal or would it simply be just to sit down with them and have a 10 minute chat and make them feel valued or both or or whatever i don't know yeah yeah i i should say actually that particular story is credited believe it or not to c.s lewis walking down the high in oxford putting putting a shilling in a beggar's hat and his friend said he'll only spend it on beer and lewis said well i don't only spend it on beer there we go there we go yeah the best thing to do um yeah don't give money don't get don't 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 get money. You're probably feeding someone's habit. Uh, I say that, and yet every now and again, I will weaken and throw a quid into someone's cap. But hopefully, most of the time, what I do is um, I'll sit down and we'll have a smoke together. Uh, mm-hmm. And it it does the image of the church nothing but good to see a vicar sat on the pavement having a smoke with someone who's homeless. Yeah. It also helps them. It always does me good as well. Uh, by all means, get someone uh, a coffee or a cup of tea. But you know what? Ask them first. Yeah. Do you want broccoli or carrots? Ask them. Yeah. Would you like a coffee? Because the chances are half a dozen other really kind people have given them a coffee in the last few hours, <laughs> especially if they're sitting anywhere near a McDonald's. Other beef burgers are available. Um, <laughs> yeah, just sitting and talking, unless, of course, you yourself are vulnerable. Uh, for a young single female may not wish to do that. We need to exercise some caution as well. Right. Um, but by all means, engage in conversation. Direct people to agencies that may be able to help them. I had someone a while ago who said to me, I was talking to a group of people about the work of St. George's Crypt. And I said, is there any questions? And he said, yeah. He said, why do you charge so much for people to stay overnight? And I had an idea what was coming. And I said, can you elaborate a bit? He said, yes. He said, I was in Albion Street the other day and there was this guy begging. And I said to him, why don't you go to the crypt? And he said, I can't afford it. And I said, well, what do they charge? And he said they charge 15 quid a night. So I gave him the 15 quid and told him, and he was very grateful, and off he went. And I had to say, well, I'm really sorry, but actually we don't charge. We have never charged anything. And he looked at me and he said, are you sure? He was very convincing. I said, well, he would be. That's his job. Yeah, he is there to convince you and make money. Um, so no, don't, don't give people money. <laughs> mm. 
Could you? I know Jim's an absolute sucker for a success story, um, and I think a lot of our listeners are. Um, could you talk to us about the work that you've done with the crypt, and maybe throw in a few examples there that can inspire us all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose to some extent I'm one in that I turned up as a client, but here I am. Uh, I still have some very, very flaky moments, but on the whole, I'm able to function. I think of one of the guys who came to us who was uh, on uh, 16 pints a day when he arrived with us. And he wasn't a big guy physically. He was ex-army. He'd been an army bandsman. And we were looking after him as best we could. Uh, But he was uh, an inveterate alcoholic. And he went to see his doctor because he was not well. And his doctor said, if you carry on like this, you're going to kill yourself. And he said, when? And he said, at the present rate, about 10 days. That was how bad he was. He was really, really poorly. And he brought him up short and he stopped drinking. Now, we never advise anyone to stop like that. It can be really dangerous if you're on that much. Come off gradually. Anyway, he did, and he ended up working for us. He ended up looking after people who had moved on and going and seeing how they were doing, floating support, as we called it. Uh, He was one. We had another guy who uh, had had an appalling childhood. He ran away from home. Uh, when he was about eight years old. And his parents didn't report him missing and didn't go looking for him. That's how bad it was. He ended up street homeless in London, drinking huge amounts, and eventually made his way to Leeds and was an angry drinker. Uh, But gradually, slowly, over a couple of years, managed to stop drinking. And he worked for us for some years. Then something happened, and he started drinking again. And that happens too. And people say, well, doesn't that mean you've failed? No, no. This guy had five years of sobriety. Someone else may have had six months cleaner drugs. All of that stuff is is, is really important. So a third of the crypt staff started as clients. Uh, many of us uh, were uh, alcoholic or on the verge of it or uh, addicted to drugs of various sorts. Yeah, we're all addicted to something, you know, even if it's only the approval of people around us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to ask how, how I mean, it's inspirational work that you do, but there must be tragic stories. And even, you know, knowing that that guy had returned to drink after five years, it must take its toll. How, how do you cope? How, I always ask the question, who helps the helper? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like last year, we were averaging one death every two weeks not necessarily in the crypt, but people who were well known to us, some of whom we knew and loved and had failed to help enough somehow. Of course, it's not all about me, you know, but yeah. How do we cope? We cope in that we are together. 
so we support one another. Uh, we cope with uh, fairly black humour. We had one guy here, I remember, I'd, we'd been donated a box of chocolate, so I was taking around the offices on my morning rounds, giving everyone a chocolate. Someone said, oh, so-and-so in room one, uh, overdosed. We got the paramedics in there right now. So I went along, and sure enough, the door was open. Our centre manager was there, two paramedics, trying to bring this guy round. Um, and they were just waiting to see. They thought they probably had. Uh, so I offered them a chocolate. Um, you know, paramedics like chocolate too. But on this occasion, they said no. And the centre manager put a, a piece of paper on top of the box of chocolate. So I just closed it and went on to the next office, opened it and realised I was offering people a suicide note. <laughs> 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 and the reaction was with the chocolates best avoid the bitter <laughs> almonds <laughs> yeah our, our humor is dark because uh, it sort of has to be yeah uh, that guy incidentally survived he was young young bodies want to live you know mm. and 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 he did and he produced the most beautiful drawing the week after yeah uh, we comfort one another. When I drive home, I <laughs> I used to drive a sports car. Uh, on my way leaving the crypt one day, I overheard one of the guys say to one of the others, you don't see many eight-year-old vicars driving a fucking Scooby-Doo, do you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I drive home and I imagine the wind blowing all the events of the day through my hair and away. You can see how effective it is. Um, <laughs> that's that's my sort of technique for doing it. Sometimes things haunt you a bit and they go on, but I have a very supportive circle of friends uh, and family. Uh, and normally laughter helps, you know. Mm. If it gets to the point where you can't laugh, that's one of the warning signs that I know is there. Um yeah, we we support one another. Now, there's the value of community over the individual. You see, it's the the the, the koinonia is the word in the the Greek New Testament for the, the community. It's at the heart of what they're doing, and as we support one another. Um, but can I just pick up on something going back to what you said about, you know, not wanting to identify with someone who's homeless? Part of this is because we we try to shield ourselves from pain. And if we once let someone in that situation in, then we feel their pain. We suffer with compassio, yeah? And so we try to avoid that. Part of the solution to that is to know that it's all right to hurt. And, you know, we said at the start, men aren't very good at doing this. We're not very good at sharing the stuff. Uh, and as soon as another man bursts into tears, we get all embarrassed and look the other way. When, in fact, most of the time, you just need to hug them and let them bury their head in your shoulder and weep their heart out if that's what they need to do. And I will need to do that sometimes as well. Mm -hmm. I do. I go into the boss sometimes and I just sit down in the chair and sob. 
And I said to him, if it ever gets to the point where I stop doing this, that's the day I need to stop doing this work. And he gives me chocolate because he you knows chocolate keeps the dementors <laughs> away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we can all yeah, incorporate I, that. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with the English singer, Georgia Smith, but she has a beautiful lyric in a song that says, if you can feel the pain, then you know you're alive. Oh, and that is right. I bet my daughter knows it. I don't know. I don't know anything written after 1950. I mean, it's it's really bad. I, look, I tried as a child desperately to love pop music, yeah, because that was cool, and it was the 60s, so there's quite some good stuff knocking around, you know. Um, and I I just like Beethoven. It just it just spoke to my condition at a mm. deep deep level. The two exceptions to that would be uh, Joni Mitchell and James Taylor. Yeah. Uh, there we go we all have our crux i i think it's beautiful what you said i mean you're right that we as men specifically um we don't want to uh, even feel that we're hurt or show or more importantly show that we're hurt and um that's a real big issue but i find that when it happens and when we allow ourselves to express that emotion to me anyway this is just personal opinion but it's it's all the more moving because it's so unexpected when I when I sit down with my girlfriends and whatever, and they'll talk and they express their emotion, I somewhat ex- expect that of them because women are more, I'd say, they're more kind of down the road in that sense. And when it happens with a man, it moves me more because it's even more unexpected. Even when it happens with myself, um, and I I love the fact that you mentioned humour because actually we only yesterday have we recorded a podcast with um, Dr. James Cantor, and we recorded it about. Um, uh, the mind of a paedophile what, what goes into that and he laced that interview which is a very dark theme he laced it with humor when it was appropriate but there was humor in there and it was needed and because i don't think that podcast could have been done without it to be quite frank and you know ricky gervais always uh, says that humor can be found in any topic and he always quotes how in the in his funeral of his own mother he would joke and he wound up the priest and he like when the priest said was there anything you want me to say and he would i can't remember what the thing he told them to say but it was quite ghastly and the priest was like taken aback and him and his brothers were laughing and i thought that that is the way to deal with it you know i mean there's there's a time and a place for tears but i think like you said if you can't laugh at it then there's a serious problem there you know the best funerals that I've conducted are those where people have laughed and cried and sometimes at the same time, you know, we do, we do that. I'm really glad that you've done that podcast because it's important. Um, when we have visiting groups of students here, which happens every now and again, I, I tell them, we lay the ground rules and say, uh, don't take any valuables with you into the room. Um, don't give out any personal contact details. Don't even tell me your surname. Uh, do not give money. Do not deal in anything. I can get you a better price. Um, and then I say to them, you know, you're going to meet some really, really interesting people. You will meet. They will be there. Murderers, rapists, drug dealers, pedophiles, absolutely everything. Some of those who are regarded as the dross within society, the untouchables, uh, and somehow to try to listen to their story too is, is, is important uh, to, to, to be there for them, to be there with the outcasts. 
Lord knows it's 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 hard. You know, I have two children myself. And sometimes I have to say to myself, these two are my children. This is my daughter. This is my son. I remember a little while ago, one of, one of the young women we had uh, asked me if I'd pray with her. And she said it was because it, was, it would have been her dad's birthday. And it was the first birthday since he died. And it was really getting to her. So we prayed. And I gave her a rosary because it can be just a reminder of a blessing, you know. And then I blessed her and her friend as they went out to work on the street as prostitutes. And this is my daughter who's going there. And she's going to be employed by my sons who are out there somehow. You know, if God can do that, as it, I need to as well. I need to be there for them and to show them that love because I'm the best they've got. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm the best they've got that day. Uh, and if I'm crabbit and difficult and, you know, just, give them the impression that they're of no account that's mm. their day so we, we 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 do what we can you know we do what we can there is a nice story there is a nice story of a convent which actually happened to be in ireland i tell you it as, a, as it was received by me and the mother superior says to the sisters when any man knocks at the door just let them in, because it might be our Lord himself in disguise. <laughs> and so it is. Later that night, the mother superior happens to be passing the front door, and she sees one of the sisters kicking a boot out of its way of stopping the door from shutting, slamming the door shut and shouting, don't <laughs> come back. And she says, sister, sister, did I not say to you just this morning, it might be... Our Lord himself in disguise. And the sister said, oh, mother, I don't think our Lord would have been using language like that. And the mother superior said, well, no, but it might have been some passion. Translate that into your own culture, if you will. I, I just, yeah. I mean, we try to see the face of Jesus in every last toe rag and scrote who comes through the doors. Yeah. And I try and look in the mirror and see the face of Jesus looking back mm. at me. That's the hard part. Mm. That's the hard one. Look in the mirror and say, mm. I love you. That's hard, but it's a really, really good thing to do. Yeah, do it till you break down. Do it till you need more gin. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, Jim, what do you what do you reckon of Rogers? Uh, it's Irish actually very accent? impressive. I think it was quite spot you know, on. I've, I've heard said. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you flip between. <laughs> oh, I butchered them. I butchered the Irish accent. It turns Northern Irish after the third word. Oh, look, um, look there's, there's nothing wrong with that. There've been some very <laughs> fine people come from the north, so they have. <laughs> There we go. I mean, I think we've had a hidden talent here. You kind of flip between them. It's uncanny. Uh, People might think we've had various guests on this one podcast. I'll tell you why. It's because it was a survival technique from my childhood. We moved around so much. I had to adapt quickly. Mm. 
when we moved from Leeds to London when I was a child. Conversation in school that day. Where were you from then, Leeds? Fucking Leeds United, kick his head in. <laughs> so, and I, up till then, I've been talking fairly Leeds, you know what I mean? Because that was how we all did. Yeah, it would have been, I mean, it'd be a bit bloody weird if I weren't, you know what I mean? Yeah, so it, it comes in handy now. I mean, I do some code switching, uh, and sometimes it used to drive me insane because my dad was Canadian. So if, if ever I was in Canada, I'd end up talking like him pretty much. <laughs> yeah, all of this, it's, it's, it's all right. You know, again, yeah. our motives are never unmixed, but it's all right. God well, gets well, around it somehow. Roger, I just, Listen, um, I just absolutely. Say, it's such a, on, a breath on, of fresh well. air hearing, not that you can be pinned down by your age, but it's a breath of fresh air to hear a man of your age express these things that, very often men generally are struggling to to accept and talk about and uh yeah i hope people listening maybe you know over 40 as well can be inspired by the the words that you're speaking today if anyone else is in that position and if there's anyone else over 90 out there um (laughs) i would say if you have had mental health issues in your past Talk about them. Talk about them to groups of people if you're addressing a group or anyone else. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be proud of. It's just human. Let's do our best to be human. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, just to leave on that note is perfect, I think. For, for anyone who's listened to this and maybe is in Leeds and, and wants to help um, with the crypt, where can they find some more information? Uh, just Google St. George's Crypt or Google Homeless Leeds. If you're not in Leeds but want to help, just Google your home place and homeless because there's a need everywhere for this. Just And don't be frightened. Well, you can be frightened, but just do it. It's all right. I was a bit, I was a bit frightened when I first walked in here. I didn't know what I could say to them that would be of any relevance. And that first day... That first day, I learned, actually, you know what? I was not any different from the people I was with. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, do. Do get stuck in. Do it. It's, you won't regret it. It's fantastic. It is life-enhancing. Really, really. Well, I tell you what, I haven't regret sending that email to you and having this conversation. It's been life-enhancing. So, uh, thank you so much, Roger. Thank it's been so a real pleasure. Me too. Thanks ever so much. Okay. Bless you both. Hi guys, thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week, but until then, keep safe and have a good one.